1 Timothy 3.16 says this, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. We're going to continue the topic, add to your faith, godliness. We're going to look at the foundation of godliness, the pursuit of godliness, and how to soak up godliness. Those are the three points we're going to look at today. We'll look at a few passages of scripture to help us understand this. Let's go ahead and ask the Lord to bless this time together in his word. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would bless now as we come before you and come before your word. Lord, we're thankful for an opportunity to worship you in song. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time now as we worship you in hearing your word being preached and taught. Please help me. Father, forgive me for sin. Lord, I pray that you would empty me of self. And Lord, I pray you'd fill me with your spirit. Lord, my goal is not to do a good job, but Father, my goal is for you to use me so that your word may be understood and it can be applied in our lives. God, we need to understand this topic of godliness and we need to apply this truth to our lives. Please help us. Father, if there's someone here today who has never yet placed their faith and trust in you for salvation, perhaps they're still depending on their perspective that they're a good person. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see the truth of your word and they would trust Christ as their savior. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There's really no better question than what is true godliness. It is the question we as human beings have been asking for generation because in asking this question, what is godliness and how do I know what godliness is? We're answering these questions. How do I know if I'm a good person? How do I I know if I'm living a good life? What is true goodness? Now, there are some things we would agree on that are good things, but around the world, there's a lot of disagreement between What is good? What is true religion? What is piety? What is reverence? Is reverence supposed to be a part of our life as a Christian? What should I reverence or hold in the highest respect? Should I reverence my parents and respect them more than I respect God? And then what does respecting God look like as a Christian? What should my worship look like? It begins here on the foundation of godliness in 1 Timothy 3 and verse number, let's back up to verse number 14. It says, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. So remember, when we look at the books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, these are known as pastoral books. So these men, Timothy and Titus, were being trained by the Apostle Paul to be pastors. So these books of the Bible are kind of like his instruction manual on how to be pastor. And he is leaving him in Ephesus 
in order to take over this church and to pastor this church. So he's teaching him. In verse number three, it goes through the qualifications of a pastor, the qualifications of a deacon. And then in verse number 14, it jumps to, I may not be there right away. So you need to know how to behave yourself and teach how to behave yourself in the house of God, it says, which is the church of the living God. Now we need to understand when we're talking about godliness, we'll come to the foundation of godliness, which is Christ in just a moment. But when he's talking about Christ, it has an effect on how we conduct ourselves in the church. We should conduct ourselves with the heart of godliness, the heart of reverence, the heart of respect for God. When we come to church, we should be looking not primarily to respect one another, but first from our heart, we need to respect God, right? And so there is a particular way to behave. Now we can see this in different cultures in different ways, but ultimately in the heart, it's not about me getting attention or you fighting for attention or us putting on a good presentation or a good show. Sometimes some churches do an amazing job and they do so with a heart of wanting to please the Lord in reverence. But other times it kind of dips into the showy part where it's almost like they're performing for a crowd. We're not, we're not performing for, for anyone here as Christians. You're not performing for me and you're not trying to convince me that you're a godly person. I'm not here to perform for you. We're here to reverence the Lord. We're here to worship him, right? We're here to respect him and we do that. When we sing the songs, we're not singing to each other. We're not singing to the pastor. We're singing to God. When we sing, we're singing to him in worship to him. And when we sit and listen to preaching and teaching, we're doing that because we're here to reverence him. Imagine if God said, I want you to show up and listen to me teach so that you can reverence me in your life. And imagine as if Jesus himself walked in bodily form into the church and he opened up his word, his own words, and he taught. That's really what we're doing here. Every time we come to church is we're coming here with an open heart as students and as worshipers so that we can learn the word of Christ and not just in a Not just in a way of gaining knowledge, not just in a way of gaining more instruction, but really the heart of every Christian, when we come to church, the heart of reverence, the heart of godliness is we need to inside be listening for God to speak to us personally. That should be the prayer of every Christian when they come to church. No matter who is speaking, no matter where you go, God, please speak to me. And that's what makes reverence and that's what makes worship personal. It's because when we come and we listen to someone teaching and preaching God's word, the Holy Spirit fills that individual. And even though I may be saying one thing, God can supernaturally apply it individually to your particular situation, something I probably know nothing about, which is fine. I'm not asking you to tell me, right? 
Uh, but it is us communicating with God, us listening to him, receiving his instruction, us having a soft heart in worship towards him. But it all comes down to verse number 16, behaving ourselves as Christians and behaving ourselves in the church of God and church behavior is so important. But the foundation of that behavior is Jesus himself. It says in verse 16, great, it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now this word godliness is the same word that we're finding it used in other places. It means, it means reverence. It means piety. It means as our little, oh, see, there it is. It's going to die. That's all right. Low battery. This is just a little model of a heart. We know that the heart pumps blood and all the nutrients and all that goes into every part of our body. We need to have that. I'll go ahead and shut this off because I know it's going to die. All right. Um, And so the heart, we have to have a heart for the Lord. Great is the mystery of godliness, the Bible says. And um, when we're talking about the foundation of godliness, the foundation of godliness is it's not us that just kind of through our imagination, we're trying to come up with some kind of a worship. We're trying to reach out to this great being that's maybe somewhere out there, we're trying to reach out to the universe. We're trying to reach out to, to some, kind of a, some kind of an orb or some kind of a power or some kind of an energy source, right? Uh, and and, and we're, we're not trying to reach out to the great spirit. We're not trying to reach out. We're not trying to find our own way. The mystery of godliness is that he came to us. Why do we worship? Why do we have reverence for him? Why do we follow him? Why do we seek to listen to his word? It's because of who he is and what he did for us. The foundation of godliness, the only reason for reverence, which would also make a great sermon title, (laughs) The only reason for reverence is because Jesus came down. The Bible says this, God was manifest in the flesh. God, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. The Bible says in John 1 and verse number 1, it says, In the beginning was the word And the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God and all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. It says in verse number 14, and the word was made flesh. John chapter one and verse number 14, the word was made flesh. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus was manifest in the flesh. The word manifest means to openly show. It's kind of like an open house, right? You see a beautiful house and you think, I can't afford that house, but I really want to go see the inside. And you see the the sign set up on the sidewalk, open house. And you say, man, I want to go see it. Open house. Let's go check it out, right? God, listen, God did not remain. It is a mystery of how God became flesh But he completely eliminated most of that mystery by coming down 
to living here on earth. There are some, listen, there are so many religions that want to make their religion as mysterious as possible. It's so mysterious. They turn the lights off. They have just one or two candles. They speak in strange languages that no one understands. They wear very strange clothing that only they understand. You with me? You know what's interesting about Christianity? It's normal. Meaning it can be understood. Meaning it's not built on mystery. It's built on revelation. God came down in the flesh and he says, this is me. And because he revealed himself as God in the flesh, it goes on to say, justified in the spirit. Justified means that he, uh, this is the part where um, he was, uh, he rose from the dead, right? That's what it's talking about when it's saying that he was justified in the spirit. Uh, through, the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he rose from the dead. He was justified in everything that he said everything that he did because he was justified in the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit rose him from the dead. You can disagree with Jesus. You can say that he's, that, that you don't want to believe it, but ultimately it comes down to the resurrection from the dead. Did he rise from the dead? Is it really true? Yeah, it is true. He really did rise from the dead. Okay, well, if he really rose from the dead, then we can work ourselves backwards into things that he said. You see, that's the foundation for godliness is he came down, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead. Why should we take the time to come out and worship him on a Sunday? Well, because he rose from the dead on a Sunday. You see, it all goes back to the cross. It all goes back to the empty tomb. Godliness, why should I reverence him? Why should I try to hold in my heart respect for God? Why should I teach my children respect for God? Why should, I, why, why should I change the way that I speak and change the way that I live and, and, and grow in Christianity because of who he is? He came down. He died for us. He rose from the dead. The Bible says he was seen of angels. He was seen of angels. He was attended by angels there for his annunciation when they came to Mary, when they came to Joseph. Angels were there at his birth. They were there for his temptation when he went into the uh, wilderness and he was tempted of the devil 40 days. After that, angels came and ministered unto him. When he was in Gethsemane and he was praying, angels came and ministered unto him. He said that he could have called a legion of angels to come and rescue him. The angels worship Jesus. The angels were there. When he rose from the dead, you see, there is, there are supernatural attendants that were, that were testimony to, to the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. It's not just a guy in history saying, oh yeah, I'm God. And then he somehow eventually got crucified. And then a bunch of people later on decided to make this big story about it. No, 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 no. All throughout everything that happened with Jesus Christ in his ministry, there were supernatural attendants that were saying, this is God in the flesh. He came to die for our sin. And if we accept him by faith, that what he did for us on the cross 
completely takes away our sin, then that gives us salvation. And because he did that for us, we've been given a new heart. The Bible says you must be born again. And when we trust Christ for our salvation, he gives us a new set of desires. And that desire is to please God. And when we follow that desire, it results in godliness. It results in a godly life, a a life that is reverent. Most people just want to reverence themselves. Most people just want to set themselves up and say, well, yeah, I can't believe that you offended me and, and I have rights and, and I want to do this and I want to do that. And don't ever tell me I'm wrong. And they set themselves up as being the ultimate authority. But for the Christian, the ultimate authority is Christ. The ultimate authority is Christ. The boss of our life, the leader of our life is Jesus himself. Why? Because he came down. He died. He didn't stay up in heaven. Uh, Instead, he came down. He became one of us. Guys, it would be like one of us becoming an ant or becoming a cockroach or becoming something that is just low and despised. That's what Jesus did for us. He became one of us. He suffered like we suffer. Why should we worship him? Why should we reverence him? Why should we listen to him? Why should we follow him? Listen, not because pastor says so. And as important as mothers are, not because mother says so. And as important as fathers are, not because father says so. And as important as churches are, not because church says so. And as important as governments are, not because government says so in some places. But it's because Jesus himself died for us. He saved us. And that's why we reverence him. That's why we follow him. Great is the mystery of godliness. It says here, preached unto the Gentiles. It wasn't just for one people group. It wasn't just for one ethnicity. It wasn't just for one time frame. It was for all people everywhere. Great is the mystery of godliness. Believed on in the world, received up into glory. That's the foundation for godliness. Now let's look at the priority of godliness. Turn the page in your Bible. I'm turning my page to chapter four, first Timothy chapter four. First Timothy chapter number four. First Timothy chapter number four. Because Christ came down and he died for us and he offers us salvation, it, it, is a, it is a spiritual life inside of us and we connect with God. It's not external pressure. It's not from the outside. It's not, it's not culture pressuring us. Listen, if we're trying to follow Christ, if we're trying to do things because we feel pressure from the outside, as in, well, I'm doing it because that person and they won't see me at church or they want me to go. And if I don't, then they'll give me a hard time and I don't want them to give me a hard time. That's not reverence. Reverence is between you and God. Reverence is you growing in your faith to the Lord. Now, here's, a, here's, a, here's an interesting topic. And it's an interesting progression in 1 Timothy that in chapter 3, he talks about pastors, deacons. Then he talks about godliness in the church. And the reason for godliness is because Jesus came down. Listen, godliness is not trying to connect with a God who doesn't know what we're going through. I'm not reverent because I'm trying to get his attention way up there. No, no, no. He's inside of us if you've trusted Christ as your savior. Now he's going to talk. He's going to switch. 
He's going he's gonna to kind of talk a little bit about who's godliness for? Who's reverence for? Sometimes we can get this idea that being religious or being reverent, that's for old people. Right? What are young people told to do nowadays? And by the way, this is in every, every culture, most cultures and young people. Well, I've heard so many times. Well, when I was young, you know, I was kind of wild and I kind of did some things, you know. And then around 30, around 40, you know, kind of got a little serious with life. And, you know, then it started. This culture worships youth. <gasps> oh, you're 17. Oh, that's just the best years. Those are the best years. No, they're not. The best years, whatever your year in right, whatever you are right now. If you're a godly person and you have an internal richness, your best year can be the one now. Don't believe these lies that you have to mourn the passing of your youth. Oh, back when I was young and I was free and I can do what? Let me tell you something, friend. If you are a Christian and you know you're on your way to heaven, okay, fine, our body gets old, but inside can get richer and richer and better and better and, and, and so incredibly good. That's what he's teaching him here. He's talking to a young man. Let's listen to what the Apostle Paul is teaching a youth. He doesn't say, go live your life, go have a bit of fun, and then whenever you're good and ready and you've got it out of your system, then come on back to Jesus. He didn't say that. Man, he puts the bar high. He puts the bar, you know, the word teenager is not in the Bible. Brother, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm, I, this, I'm, you know. I need this. You know, people tell me all the time, oh, brother, you're young. I'm 39. Oh, you're young. Older pastors. Oh, you're young. We, we like to hear that, don't we? We all like to hear that. The point I'm trying to make is, and we'll look at these verses. The point I'm trying to make is godliness is for everyone. Godly, there's no excuse for a Christian of any age, at their age, and at their own understanding and maturity level, to pursue godliness. And that's the message the Apostle Paul was saying. Look at this. Now that, now that we know we're talking about youth, verse 12, let no man despise thy youth. Okay, so we're going to look at the context. Remember, we always do that. We're not just going to pick one verse out or one or two words. We're going to look and say, what is he talking about in general? What's the conversation? Now we're going to look at our word godly. Verse 8. For bodily exercise profiteth little. Now he's making a comparison here. He's not saying don't exercise. He's not saying that. Matter of fact, if you look at it closely in the Greek, it actually means bodily exercise profits for a little time. And the comparison is, but... Look at it. Godliness is profitable unto all things. Now we can look at it like exercise, and I love it. I love exercise. I go, I go on jogs for fun. 
Some people are like that. Some people hate it. That's fine. But it's talking about what do we exercise here? What is the pursuit? If we're going to be a godly person, what should be the priority? The external exercising of the body or the internal exercising of godliness? For the reverent Christian, it should fall heavier on the internal. Do we understand that? Now, again, we go back to these times. They didn't have to exercise to be fit most of the time back in these days because they lived in very physical times. They walked everywhere. Everything was physical. All right? And of course, they did have the Greek games and such. But it's interesting, the message that he has for young people is this, that the spiritual is to be pursued above or the priority should be above the physical. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. When it's saying that bodily exercise profit is little, it means for a little time. It also is saying godliness needs to be exercised. It's not just natural. I'm a Christian, so I'm naturally fine. No, no, no. We don't see that in the, in the exercise realm. We're not just naturally fine. We have, to, we have to try to get exercise. And everybody does it in different ways. Or we should do it in, and, and you do it in a way that you uh, want to do it. But, but when it comes to godliness, it, it has to be intentional. Right? And by comparison, we see that the spiritual is to be pursued above the physical. And now he gets really specific here. And he talks about how, number one, eternity should be the focus, not immediate pleasure for yourself. He says in verse number eight, godliness is profitable in all things, having promise of the life that now is. So that means if I pursue reverence and godliness, it is very profitable for this life right now. It's good for me right now to have that rich, internal, spiritual Life with me and God. That's so important. It's so important to pursue that life where it's personal between me and God. And it says, and of that which is to come. Eternity should be the focus, not immediate pleasure for yourself. What a promise from God that when I pursue godliness, it benefits me right now, but it also is going to benefit me after I die, when we give time to God, whether it's personally in prayer and in Bible reading, whether it's trying to witness to someone, it is throughout the New Testament that we will be rewarded once we get to heaven. It is not a waste to serve the Lord. It is not a waste. A matter of fact, by comparison, by comparison here, he's saying, he's saying physical exercise does benefit, but it only benefits for a little while. By comparison to exercising godliness, it is a massive benefit now and also when we die. You know, there are people that are absolutely struggling because inside they struggle to find purpose for their life. And some people pour all of that intention and purpose 
into a physical pursuit. And there's nothing wrong with that. Pour it into a physical pursuit. But what happens when you're no longer physically able to pursue that? What if, God forbid, you try your hardest to become a professional athlete of some kind and you do everything that you can and yet you still don't make the cut? You still don't make it into the pros. You still, here's the thing about godliness. It is incredibly satisfying to anyone who tries it. It's for you. It's for you. And by the way, what about the people who physically, through sickness, they just can't exercise? Or they can't exercise the way that they want to, or they can't exercise the way that they used to. What then? Is my life over? Is my hope gone? I want my endorphins, right? That good feeling you get after you've exercised, for sure. What do we do then? Is my life over? What do I have to look forward to? How about we take the time now while we're young, today, right now. You say, Pastor, I'm not young. Well, you're younger than what you will be in the future. In a couple of years, you're going to be older, right? So let's pursue it now. Let's pursue godliness and reverence to the Lord now. Now he gives us specifics. It says in verse number 10, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. Work at serving the Lord. Be willing to suffer to serve the Lord. We are defined as human beings primarily by what we are willing to suffer for. What are we willing to suffer for? There are some people that are willing to suffer in extreme ways in bodily pain in order to accomplish a goal. Some people put themselves through mental anguish in order to accomplish a goal. Some people put themselves through academic suffering in order to achieve something. Some people put themselves in emotional suffering on purpose. But what about serving the Lord? Listen, if we are going to be godly people, we are going to have to pursue serving the Lord, which means serving others. There is such an incredible emphasis, I've said it a hundred times today, on self. What do I want? What do I want? What do I want? And here he is, the Apostle Paul is teaching Timothy. He's saying, look, don't let your youth be an excuse to be selfish because true Happiness and true uh, peace and joy do not come through selfish pursuits. It comes through service to God and to be willing to suffer to serve him and be willing to suffer to serve others. Godliness is growing in the heart of a Christian who is willing to labor and suffer in service for the Lord. Timothy was a youthful man who was expected to serve the Lord, to be an example To the older believers, look at this verse. Look at verse 12. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. Pastor, what should I do? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian young person. I'm a Christian person in in, in my particular age, whatever age you may be. Again, we're, we're all younger to somebody, right? In this particular case, Timothy was younger than Paul. So he's calling him a youth. He's calling, calling him a young person. In our, in our age right now, what should we pursue? 
We should pursue serving the Lord, serving others, and being an example. Godliness means I am going to be an example for other people to follow. Not just an example in all of these other things, but specifically an example. And then he gives a quick list. Be an example of the believers in word. I am going to be a Christian example in my speech. I'm going to be a Christian example in my speech. When I say something, when, when I, uh, the, the, the word choices that I use, there ought to be a difference between the, the words that we choose and the word choices of unbelievers. There is a difference in the way a godly Christian speaks and the way an ungodly person speaks. An example in word and conversation, that means lifestyle. I'm going to be an example in my lifestyle. Does my lifestyle show that I reverence the Lord? Or does it show that I reverence myself? Or show that I reverence something else? If we want to find purpose in life, we ought to say, I'm going to internalize the message of Christ. I'm going to make it so that it's between me and God. I'm going to allow God's grace to teach me how he wants me to speak to other people. I'm going to be an example of that. I'm going to be an example of lifestyle, of Christian lifestyle. I'm going to be an example of Christian charity. It says the next word in charity or an agape love. I'm going to be an example, it says, in spirit, in faith, in purity. My goodness, we need to hear this message these days. The world tells us purity is for is silliness. Go out and experiment. Go out and have fun. Go out and just do whatever. Hey, choose the safe option. Don't suppress yourself. Just go do your thing. Don't worry. This is the time of life where you can go and experiment and have a lot of fun. And yet here we find for the Christian young person or for the Christian in general, we ought to be an example of purity. There is great, incredible satisfaction and purpose in knowing I am honoring my God through purity. I'm honoring my God through faith. I'm honoring my God through my lifestyle. That is extremely satisfying for the Christian. For the non-Christian, it doesn't make sense. For the non-Christian, they think it's foolish. For the non-Christian, they think it's a complete waste. For the non-Christian, they say, why would you do that? But for the Christian, these words and these challenges, listen, we do not need Christians where, 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 where the challenge for living Christianity, where it's so incredibly low, we need to say, I want to do exactly what God's word says. I want to meet the challenge. Going back to bodily exercise, man, there's so many challenges out there that people can do. You can sign up for almost any kind of physical challenge you can think of. And some of them, it's like, why would you do that? Why would you challenge yourself in your way? And people are like, I don't know. I just wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to see what I was capable of. Well, how about we apply that same logic to the Christian life? Let's challenge ourselves to be a reverent and godly Christian. It says here, verse 13, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. We should give attendance to reading. Godliness is willing 
to read. It's willing to study. Godliness is willing to exhort, meaning I'm going to look for someone else to encourage along their way, along their path. I'm not just going to go through life looking to say, what about me? What about me? What about me? Give me attention. Give me attention. Instead, I'm going to say, I'm going to be an example of Christ. I'm going to be a servant to others. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to help other people. I'm going to look for that person who seems like they're having a bad day. And I'm going to listen. And I'm going to try to encourage them. Instead of going through a life where we, where we are pursuing selfish ambition. The Bible says in verse 14, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Now we know here that Timothy, that his gift was to be a pastor, for him to be a preacher. And the Apostle Paul is teaching him, if you're going to be a godly person, you need to pursue the gift that has been given you. And your gift is to teach and preach God's word. And we're not going to take the time, but we, can, but we know that if we go through scripture, um, the Bible says that when we accept Christ as our savior, God gives us a gift. And that gift is to be used within the context of the local church. When we come in here, we ought to be saying, God, how do you want me to be a part? How do you want me to be a, give, uh, a giver? Do you want me to be someone who encourages others? Should, should I serve? Should I be a teacher? Should I, should, I, should I show mercy? Should I go and listen to that person's story? Should I go and put an arm around them and say, I love you, I'm praying for you? How can I be Christ-like? This is what godliness does. We notice here that godliness goes back to Jesus. Jesus is an example of every single one of these things that we talked about here. And that's what godliness is. It is my heart of respect for God and allowing Jesus to teach me how to be just like him and be an example of Christianity in every area of our life. I want to give you one last piece, one last piece of the puzzle. And these will be the verses that we mentioned on the screen when we did the reading together. Psalm 1 And there is a lot that can be pulled out of these verses. But we're just going to look at one particular thing. Psalms 1, chapter 1 and verse number 1. I want you to notice the word ungodly, right? So godliness in contrast to ungodly. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now we're talking about soaking up. How do I become a godly person? How do I grow in this in, in this challenge of being an example, no matter my age, again, in Timothy talking about youth, but no matter what the age, how do I grow as a Christian? The Bible talks about something that is often talked about in the world today, which is called meditation. Now, in the Western world, oftentimes meditation is taken from the Buddhist idea where you empty your mind by sitting very, very still, holding yourself in a particular position, and perhaps sometimes they're just simply being quiet. Other times 
They're actually mumbling a prayer. And what's interesting is if you look at this word meditation, it actually means mumbling, right? You're talking to yourself, right? But it's interesting to note that when we look at the Christian, um, the Christian topic of meditation, you're not trying to empty, you're trying to fill. Say, so it says here in verse number two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law doth he meditate day and night. What he meditates on. What, what, what that Christian thinks about. You know, worrying is meditation. Some of us are really good at meditating on things that we worry about. What is worry? Worry is taking what if? What happens? Oh no. And we go through different scenarios and we follow that scenario and we think and we think and we think and we follow it. And we think about other scenarios and other ways things can happen, but it's always in the negative, right? We know how to worry. Every one of us knows how to worry. But notice that what we meditate on is what we put in our brain. Verse number one talks about counsel of the ungodly. We're listening to bad advice and we're listening and we're putting that in. If we listen to bad advice, we're not going to be a godly Christian. It talks about how we're standing in the way of sinner or we're standing in the lifestyle of the ungodly, the lifestyle of non-Christians. doesn't mean they're bad people uh, necessarily. It just means that they're not pursuing godliness. So if I'm going to be a godly person, if I'm going to internalize my faith and for it to become something that I really pursue for myself, I cannot sit there and try to read through all the self-help books that I find because that does not promote godliness. What promotes godliness? What do I need to meditate on? What do I need to put in and think about? What do I need to go back to throughout the day? The Bible even talks about how it's night and day and night and day. We need to be so intentional with God's word. The Christian who has God's word readily available and has memorized it and perhaps is singing the songs and that, that, that they learn in church or, they, or they have, they have um, songs that they have on their phone or some other device and they're singing these songs and, they're, and they're, 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 they're singing about Jesus and they're singing about faith and they're singing about scripture and they have these things. It becomes a very, very rich inner world and you become a completely different person. You are the person of whatever content you internalize. You are the person of whatever you meditate on. It says his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Whatever I'm putting in, that's what I delight in. That's what makes me so, so happy. Let me ask you something. What kind of content makes you happy? What is it that you just cannot live without? What is it that you just can't wait to get back to? Oh, I hope they've updated it. I hope they've got another one. I, and, and I'm not talking about everything. I'm just talking about there are some of those things that are so corrosive in our heart and so difficult. It cuts down our faith. It cuts down our, uh, that, that attitude. 
excuse me, it cuts down that attitude of serving others. It cuts down that attitude of godliness and reverence. And we're just left there and we just feel empty. We just feel empty. If we're going to be a godly Christian, we have to be cautious and intentional about what we are putting inside of us. Everybody bow your heads, please, and close your eyes.